and we went from Bologna to Modena in approximately 25 minutes and I kept on looking at the speedo saying to Prince Edward uh we're going a bit too quick he said don't worry keep up with the police car welcome to career view mirror the automotive podcast that goes behind the scenes with key players in the industry looking back over their careers so far sharing insights to help you with your own journey I'm your host Andy Fox Smith listeners. Ian has 40 years experience in the automotive industry in retail and corporate sales, working across mainstream, premium and luxury brands. In the last decade, he's made a name for himself in the super luxury segment, taking care of Rolls-Royce and McLaren private clients around the world. His network of high net worth contacts have encouraged him to expand his reach across other luxury goods. And now as the owner of luxury goods consultancy Carsmith, he'll happily find you the luxury car, watch, plane or yacht of your dreams. In our conversation, we track his journey from occasionally sleeping in the footwell of one of his dad's haulage lorries to spending three months in Porto Servo, Sardinia on the super yacht, super highway, connecting with yacht owners and introducing them to Rolls Royce. I'm pleased to be able to introduce you to Ian via this conversation and I hope that you enjoy getting to know him and his story. I look forward to hearing what resonates with you. This episode of Career View Mirror is brought to you by the Aquilae Academy. At the Academy, we turn individual development into a team sport. We bring together small groups of leaders from non-competing organisations to form their very own academy team. We build strong connection between team members and create a great environment for sharing and learning. We introduce the team to content that can help them tackle their current challenges and we hold them accountable to take the actions that they decide are their priorities. We say, we hold our team members' feet to the fire of their best intentions. We do this internationally with teams across the world. If you'd like to learn more about the Academy, go to www.aquili.co.uk. Hello, Ian, and welcome. And where are you coming to us from today? Hi, Andy. Um, good to see you. I'm actually talking to you from Oxted in Surrey in the UK. Beautiful. Thank you very much. And where did your journey start? Where were you born and where did you grow up? I was actually born in the Salvation Army Mother's Hospital in Hackney, East London. Ah. So I'm actually a true Cockney. Oh, right. That's You could well be our first true Cockney. on the, What's the definition of a Cockney then? If you're a true Cockney, what does that involve? Uh, it's if you were born within the sound of the Bow Bells Church in Hackney. Yes, that's a, nice. what, a lovely measure. It's quite a. <laughs> can you hear it? Can you hear it? Yeah, um, yeah lovely, a lovely measure. Um, so, do you tend to use much rhyming slang? Not really. It used to be fun uh, a long time ago, but uh, I'm not sure some of my international uh, clientele would actually understand, you know, apples and pears and the frog and toad. 
<laughs> no, I think we'll be uh, confusing them already. So I'll stop that line of inquiry. Yes. You, you, so you were born in Hackney. And did you stay there? Were you, did you grow up there? How long were you there for? Uh, literally, my parents um, had a flat there. And uh, as soon as they could move out, they moved out. And we ended up, first home was in a place called Hyams Park, which is London E4. I was there until I was 24 at the family home. And then I got kicked out. Right. Well, they gave you a good, good length of time there. So tell us a little bit about growing up then, Ian. Did you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I had one sister. Uh, her name is Faith. And uh, she's 18 months younger than me. And I always ask my guests, Ian, what, because I'm interested in what they had, what sort of roles they had visibility of when they were growing up. What, what were your parents doing for careers or jobs? Okay, so my father was a transport contractor. So he had a fleet of trucks. Um, he used to drive one himself and he had a, a number of drivers and they were general haulage contractors. So this was before Tachograph, and they used to be able to drive up to places like Liverpool and Scotland, back down to the base again to load up and back out again. So, so the Tachograph, there were no limits on how many hours they drove in a day or anything like that. That's what the Tachograph measures, doesn't it? That's, that's right. So, yeah, so that was my dad. So very, very hard graph, many, many hours. Used to spend most nights sleeping in the cab. Um, I joined him for a lot of my younger years, used to sleep in the footwell of the truck where the exhaust was at night because it was warm. So I used to help him load the trucks, uh, help the drivers out, all that sort of stuff in my summer holidays and things like that. So that's what I did with my dad. Uh, my mother had, when we kind of went to school and she, we didn't need her so much in the nicest possible way, she had travel agencies. She had uh, three of those and had corporate accounts. So we were, if you like, the Stobarts of the world and the Hog Robinsons of the travel world. <laughs> yeah. And that's where I got my work ethic from, Andy, is, is following their lead if you like yeah so they sound entrepreneurial your dad had a fleet of trucks your mum had three travel agents but your, your dad was getting down to it and driving the truck and and you were helping unload so very down-to-earth work that you were exposed to especially when yeah. I, it just it's making me smile when I because I know what's coming in terms of the the kind of circles you're mixing in and the the wonderful locations you find yourself and uh, I, I'm guessing you don't sleep in many footwells these days, but uh, we'll, we'll, <laughs> no. we'll, we'll come on to that. And this is why I love hearing hearing the early days. Whilst we're on early days, a little bit about school. What did that mean for you? How were you as a student? Were they good times? Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, uh, that's a bit of a thorny subject, actually. I went to an all-boys secondary modern school and it was part of a big uh, estate where my mother had her travel agency okay so it was quite a long way away from home and for the first couple of years she drove me to school every day but because this school was built for this huge big estate council estate really 
it wasn't the best schooling, but it was the school of hard knocks. So what I learned at school kind of carries me through now. Yeah, it, it wasn't so good, Andy, on the schooling front. So I don't, I don't think I came out, you know, knowing too much other than being streetwise, really. Stop yourself getting beaten up. <laughs> right okay so academically not the best opportunity there no uh, no, no socially was, socially was it okay well I'm still good friends with two of the guys that I was in school with so I met them That's when I was good. 11 years old and I'm knocking on the door of stage six let's put it that way and we're still good buddies and they've gone on to be very very successful in what they've done so we we always laugh and joke about it, actually. You would never think that we could have come from that school and, you know, did what we did to date, if you know what I mean. Isn't it fascinating? Isn't it fascinating? Those stories like that. Wonderful hearing those stories of people who've done really well from the, the humblest of uh, educational origins, if you like. And likewise, yeah. you, you can have people who have very privileged education and really don't unfortunately follow a trajectory that they started out on perhaps for whatever reason yeah. so um, I'm glad you've still got your your pals from those school days and when you were coming towards the end of school how clear were you on what you wanted to do what direction you wanted to go in well it's funny because my grandfather was in the car retail business my uncle was in the crash repair business my father was in the transportation business, so everything had wheels attached to it. It did, didn't it? And I was absolutely car mad and had a car before I started driving. So I was destined to go into cars. It does sound, does sound like it. And how did you get your first uh, opportunity then? Okay, the first opportunity was to go to the job centre, actually, at the time. And there was a, a job advertised there to be a trainee uh, motor mechanic for a family-run business that had the Honda and Volvo franchises in Walthamstow, East London. So I went with my mum, like you do when you're 15 years old and you've left school and had an interview and the gentleman Mr Arthur Pullum his name was still remember him absolutely stunk of cigarettes <laughs> and he said yeah well there you go we'd like you to work for us and that that was it I became a junior motor mechanic and where did your journey your career as you recognize it now Ian where did that start? Because you've obviously you're not a motor mechanic now. You're you're quite quite far from the tools, I would say. So where did that the the career that you're on now, or the, the type of roles that you do now, where did that start? Okay, so it was when I started seeing the sales guys for the Volvo and the Honda business driving around in their lovely clean demonstration cars in their suits and I thought to myself actually I quite fancy doing that that looks like good fun and there was some jobs in between times 
Um, I actually left the automotive business, joined the clothing business for a while, a friend of my father's. But then I, I decided, you know what, I really want to sell cars. So looked in the newspapers and I saw a job advertised to be a junior salesman working for a Porsche dealership that happened to be in Mayfair. But um, when I went for the interview at the agency, we got on really well, myself and the guy in the agency. But he said to me, Ian, you've got a very, very broad London accent, he said. And I'm going to have to call the employer just to see if they're prepared to take somebody that is from London, clearly. So I said, okay. So they sent me along just to drop my CV off and ask for the manager and for me to walk in, say hi, give them my CV. And that was it. And they were going to make a call on that, on whether they would like to interview me purely based on that. So I'm not sure that would go down too well today. If you raised eyebrows in the HR community, I think. Exactly. Exactly. But that, but that is what happened, Andy. That's fact. Okay. So, look, this is a, I love accents. Can you still do it? Can you still tell us what young Ian used to sound like? No, I probably can't. <laughs> <laughs> I probably can't. But um, so I've tried to, you know, polish those rough edges off over the years. How about that? Yeah. But uh, anyway, consequently, and I had an interview with the general manager and the sales manager, and they gave me the job of the junior sales guy, i.e. the whipping boy, as he used to be, the tea boy, and do that, do that, drop this, go there, that kind of job to begin with. Which, if you're going to do that kind of job, then doing it in a Porsche dealership in Mayfair, which... For those who don't know, Mayfair, I think on Monopoly, Mayfair is the most expensive street or road, isn't it, or area? Yeah. So um, it is Still the is. prime, Still yeah, is. prime location, prime real estate. So that is quite the place to be cutting your teeth if you want to be in automotive retail. Yeah, no, it was good fun, actually. That was in 1986, Andy. So you were immersed in luxury. You were surrounded by the luxury environment of Mayfair and the, the brand of Porsche, and I'm sure surrounded by other really nice brands around there. How did you find it? Was it what you expected it to be? Uh, well, I was in awe of the cars, of course. It was just wonderful. I mean, to begin with, I wasn't allowed to drive them. But in the end, needs prevailed. So I got given the opportunity to drive these beautiful cars and treat them with care and everything else. It was just a really good job. And I think I joined it at the time in 1986 when there was a financial crash. You might know more about the actual year and the time, but it didn't seem very long when I was there. And everybody was trying to sell their Porsches back because they were in um, financial issues, you know. Yeah. And I got given a job to do called the Visitronic Cabinet. I'm not sure if you ever remember Visitronic. They were little cards that sat in a like a roller decks, if you like. And on there, 
it was probably a very, very um, early CRM system, if you like, but it was all very manual, handwritten. And I had to go through every single one of these cards and ring up people and say, would you like to buy a Porsche, sir? And it was very, very hard because of the times that we were going through at that time. But I was happy to do it. You know, I was keen and everything else. And that set me up, actually, to give me a bit of a database. So when things got good, people started ringing me back. Right. And so did you not have any, you, you didn't have any issues about phoning those people and asking them? There was no call reluctance or any of those? Was I, was I worried about doing it or nervous yeah. about doing it? Yeah. Not really, actually, because when you don't know any better, you know, and your manager says, I need you to ring all those people today. And whatever they say, I want you to write the notes down. That's what I did. Yeah. And I have to say, the boss of the business at the time was very, very focused on doing everything correctly, properly. And uh, he taught me really good lessons, which are still with me today. I would say he he was my... Um, my mentor of, of all mentors that I've had. Can you give us an example of something that you've carried with you from there? We used to have a lady that used to type our letters and she used to do a triplicate, a carbon copy of the letter. And one used to go in the file, one used to go to the back office and one went to the customer. And she was only a young lady and I I signed my letter off and I'd overlooked that we had taken or we had sold another car other than a Porsche. And it actually said, dear Mr. Customer, thank you very much for the order for your Ferrari. <laughs> and uh, the letter went back to the back office and I got a little phone call to say, Mr. Smith, would you come through to... Um, managing director's office i've gone through and i've sat in a chair at the end of his desk and his secretary was at the other end of the desk and he said mr smith what do you think i've called you in for so i said i've no idea please tell me and uh he gave me a copy of the letter and there it is where the secretary had highlighted the word ferrari he said what did this customer buy so i said a porsche so he said, what have you written? Thank you for the order for your Ferrari then. And I got chastised like you wouldn't believe. So what had happened there then? Well, the young lady had obviously got the letter as a, a set-up letter. had altered the, uh, the brand of car that had been sold, but didn't alter it back to okay so she just taken one from a ferrari customer and uh got it not not checked it so yes so attention to detail and all that i would suggest. yeah so you now would read over anything and make sure that it's put on that attention to detail lesson okay you mentioned your database you mentioned that going through that Visidex, was it called Visidex? Visitronic. Visitronic, yes. Yeah, so I'm mixing up Rolodex and Visitronic. <laughs> you mentioned that that was the beginnings of a database for you. And I'm just going to pick on this as a, a point because I'm imagining your 
database, your little black book, your your equivalent of a Rolodex, whatever you have now. How important is that? What proportion of your ability, your success that you've had over the years uh, rests on the network that you have? It's certainly important. And I still speak to some of those people that I sold cars to all those years ago. Uh, who have stayed loyal with me, no matter what brand that I have gone to. They will ring me. They'll have seen my name in the automotive press where I'd moved from one business to another business. And, yeah, it's it's incredibly important, actually. Of course, you know, when you work for a business and you pick up new people, they belong to the business, you know. But it's very much a people business. You know, they don't necessarily see HR Rowan or Lancaster or whatever above the door. They actually see you. You know, they've got your your number in their phone and you're the one they ring on a Saturday or a Sunday or a bank holiday at nine o'clock at night to say, you know, my son's just dropped the remote key for my car in the pond can you help me? It's those kind of relationships that you get, actually. Yeah, so you can't, they cannot help but to form a relationship with you. Yeah. And so there you were, you'd been chastised for uh, missing this um, Ferrari mistake on the letter. It wasn't career limiting in that particular role, I take it. You were allowed to go back to the job and... Uh... Uh, oh, yeah, no, went back with a, a slight thick ear, I would suggest. Yeah. And, um, but I think he saw the good in me. I had to ring the customer, of course, and apologise, who thought it was quite funny, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but obviously my managing director didn't think so. But there we are. But uh, no, that was all good fun. So you then at some point would have decided to move on from there. What was the trigger for that and, and what was the transition? What happened there was the chairman uh, at the time of the business that I worked for, he had this, now you would think a brainwave, he wanted to have Range Rover in one side of his business in the showroom and Porsche on the other side of the showroom. But Porsche at the time were very, very protective and they said, no, you're not doing that. You've got to have standalone businesses. So our chairman at the time went head to head with Porsche and lost out, actually. So we ended up getting terminated, and uh, which is a shame because the business at the time had had Porsche franchise for a long time and was doing very well. As we know, the Porsche retail group was formed off the back of what happened to us in London. And we ended up taking the Mazda franchise, believe it or not, into the centre of Mayfair when the little MX-5 first came out in 1989, I think it was, 1989 or 90. And the last day of the Porsche business, I was sat there at my desk looking at a 911 Carrera 4, which had just been released, and I was looking at a Mazda MX-5, nose to nose, 
one car at 40,000 and another car, at, I think at the time, about 18,000. And they said, that's your new company car. So I said, oh, fantastic. Thank you very much. We want you to stay with us and not go anywhere else because um, we want you to sell Mazda. Anyway, cut long story short, Andy, they incentivized me to stay. I stayed and we grew a Mazda business from the small showroom in Mayfair to the largest Mazda business in the UK within three years. How did you do that? We started getting into leasing companies, doing fleets of cars, Hewlett Packard, Marks and Spencers, NatWest Bank, and we became a corporate player. And that's how my business in the corporate world started to come about from Mazda. Interesting. So yeah. quite a change, quite a change there. Abs- absolutely. I missed the Porsche product, something terrible at the time, but started having this new challenge, which was all about volume and getting as many leasing companies on board as I could at the time. And what were some of the, because you um, had a number of moves in your early career what are some of the highlights that stand out for you in that part of your journey from the Mazda business uh, at the time my general manager was given an opportunity to set up a new Toyota and Lexus dealership in the in the uh, city of London and he phoned me and he said I'd really like you to come and work with me uh, and be the sales manager of this new business. And uh, so I said, thank you very much. We talked and talked and talked. And uh, in the end, I went with him to set up this brand new Toyota Lexus business. And I enjoyed it, but it was in a backwater of the city of London. I felt like my wings were clipped and I... I didn't stay very long because I was actually phoned by Saab, um, a company called Saab City and Saab Piccadilly. You may recall they were owned by Saab GB and they had premises uh, literally in Piccadilly and in Wapping on the highway. And if you know the highway in Wapping, it was main archery into London so it was a huge huge building um, owned by Saab GB and I was taken on to be corporate business development with Saab. So you appreciated being in a busier? A busier busier, yeah and you know the cars as you know Saab cars were a bit quirky and I like that a little bit of a challenge So I worked with those guys. And during that time, the contacts I picked up at the leasing companies with Mazda, um, I started selling Saabs to. Okay. And then one day, a chap walked in, asked to speak to somebody in corporate or business sales. So I spoke to him. It turned out he was a... um, chief inspector of the city of london police and he wanted to uh, buy some 
covert undercover cars. So I looked after him, sold him a couple of cars. That was some good fun there because he took me out with a blue light on in our car and, and we had a night out one night, me sat in the back with the police officers while they were on patrol. And I thought to myself, I wonder if any of the other police forces would buy a police car. So again, I sold some cars to different police forces around the country. So that was quite entrepreneurial, seeing an opportunity and uh, following it through and not being afraid you know, to prospect and to get out there and talk to them. Correct. Uh, and in the end, we had our own Saab police car that was all um, got the lights, got the Provida tracker equipment. So we funded it and we used to give it to the police forces to test. And um, we ended up selling quite a lot of police cars to the forces around around the UK. So, so that Saab was a good covert. People weren't expecting Saab police cars, I don't imagine. No, they weren't. And they were quite quite quick cars at the time with their turbos and things so that was really good fun actually that job but uh, funny enough I used to um, go go go-karting with one of the salesmen there and one of the salesman's brother happened to be the sales manager of BMW Park Lane and then I got a phone call one day we want to boost our corporate sales they said would you uh, be prepared to come and work for us? And so it took me back into the West End again, which I loved after all those years working with Porsche and Mazda in London. And I agreed. And then uh, I was with Park Lane and their other subsidiary called Park West at the time down in Chiswick, looking after all of the corporate BMW sales at the time. Before we had Mini, that was. And I think the best year I ever had between the two businesses was about 3,000 units. Wow. So it was busy, busy. So now you've got a mixture of, you're, you're back in premium brands, but in a busy, busy, with volume. Absolutely. And it was actually, Andy, ironically, before email. So there's a lot of checking of letters and, uh, and typing again. You got it. And a lot of faxes. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> so I enjoyed I enjoyed that for uh, approximately eight years, working with those guys. But one of the gentlemen that used to come and see us from BMW UK was actually asked to go and join a motor company, a motor group, as the operations director. And this group had BMW, Audi and Volkswagen. And he phoned me. And he said, I'd like you to come and run my group's corporate business. Which There's gives a bit you... of a theme emerging of people asking you. There's not a lot of hunting for jobs going on. No, there isn't. And I have to be honest and say I'm very blessed. Apart from my original interview with the man that smelt of the cigarettes all those years ago. <laughs> Cigarette smoke, man, yeah. <laughs> I haven't really had many interviews. So you were doing good jobs. People got to know you. They moved or they met you through some channel and then asked you to come and join them. But you know, starting to be what I'm noticing also, which is not unusual, is is people hire you to do the thing that they've already seen you do. 
So they've known, okay, you're good at building corporate sales. So if we're starting this new function, let's get Ian in to do that. That's right. Yeah, so I, I, I went to work for this motor group, which was multi-franchise. So again, multi-franchise gives you multi-opportunities. And again, you get more contacts. You learn to do tenders, a lot more things, you know, chucked into the, the remit, which is all good. Um, managing people, you know, a team of drivers to deliver cars, making sure you're getting the, the bad debts chased up you know you've got to have a, a handle on all these other tangents with these with these bigger jobs which which was brilliant you know good round it yeah indeed uh and then sat in the boardroom one day having a meeting with all the general managers from the group our chairman came in and just said guys just letting you know that i've just sold the business to a huge retail conglomerate so we were all sort of a bit wow what does this mean for us yeah it actually didn't mean anything we kept our jobs we did what we were doing but because of the size of this business that had bought us it gave me particularly even more opportunity more brands more exposure what was the group that had acquired it was Inchcape Retail. Ah, okay. Okay, so we, we know how, uh, how big those guys are. Indeed. So I was working, working away, getting used to franchises that I hadn't worked with, meeting new OEMs I hadn't worked with, uh, more people. But one of the directors of the original group had gone off in a different direction. And uh, he joined another motor group, which was emerging and buying up and getting bigger. And I get a phone call, Andy. Would I like to come and run their corporate division? I could row my own boat, as he described it. So I didn't have to sort of fit in with the Inchcape retail way. I could actually build my own department my own processes my own everything really so right. what do you think i did well <laughs> i imagine you you did it and i'm wondering was it was that within inchcape still or was this an egg on it externally i left inchcape and then went to this other group and remained there for quite some time is there a because it does sound like an awful lot of people approaching you and I guess you don't you don't talk about the ones that you decided not to because there'd be there'd be lots of those as well but is there a common thread for those you know what made you actually move I think it was working my way up the career ladder in terms of position exposure just opportunity really I just mm. seeing the bigger opportunity that was the attraction. And then that you is. mentioned, you see, it's interesting because you said it, the words he used were you'd be able to row your own. Was it row yeah. your own boat? Yeah. yeah. And I'm guessing you've actually remembered that. that. That resonated with you so much at the time. You yeah. know, it struck such a chord that you remembered it all that yeah. time. Uh, yeah. So that was a powerful motivator. Definitely. It all turned out well, the Inchcape acquisition. I mean, yes, you moved on. 
um, shortly afterwards. But the Inchcape acquisition turned out to not be a bad thing because it brought in lots of new brands and opportunities for people. Imagining, though, that that didn't make it any less disconcerting uh, or you know worrying at the time. There would have been a period of time where they said, OK, the business, I've sold the business. You're going to be new owners. I imagine it was still that was an uncomfortable period of time until you worked out that oh, actually this is all right. This is an opportunity, not a threat. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so you still suffer. You still suffer even if things turn out well, unless you're really calm and able to sort of not worry about these things and think think everything's going to be all right in the end. Yeah, no, I was I was assured everything would be fine in terms of you know salary, I suppose, uh, stability. Um, all that sort of stuff. So I, I didn't think, you know, there was three people going for my job and only, you know, I could lose out. That wasn't the case. So it was it was good. Very good. So you're given the the opportunity to to set up your own department. Correct. Own, to tell us a little bit about how you did that. Uh, well, the businesses were all run uh, independently at the time. A lot of the leasing companies wanted to have a one-stop shop if you like they wanted to be able to speak to one team that handled all franchises uh, and this is at the time when there was the um, Eben Daxes of the world coming on and the Epex One Link um, so, there so were these the, were new software platforms to help the fleet industry particularly help connect dealers to leasing companies and uh, automate some of the uh, processes around purchasing cars in volume that's right absolutely and it was a way that they could actually grade the dealerships it was a way that they could check how quickly they were coming back to an inquiry um, the slippage so it's all very well quoting a car for delivery and it not coming through because, of course, the leasing companies have got their customer waiting for the car. So mm. it makes them not look so good. So the, the supply chain um, had to be, you know, like a Swiss watch. It, it had to um, be on time and everything else and run smoothly. So I actually, because of all those Day, all those years ago, having my MD saying everything needs to be strict and proper and on time. And I loved it. I relished uh, having those tools. Right. So you'd already embraced the idea of attention to detail and process. And uh, as you say, the Swiss watch, that, that level of precision. And, and so these tools were, were measuring that and showing where it was slipping and where you needed to focus your attention they were giving you the feedback you needed to create processes that really work for customers absolutely right so you know and we used to have meeting regular meetings with the end users or the leasing companies and we would say you know tell us what would make us even better and slicker for you so it was a um, collaboration to make things perfect and I think people used to hear that about me running running these operations, and this is what they wanted. Yeah. And it's not a – I'm just thinking whether it's worth saying something about how the fleet, you know, the fleet area within retail, it, it can be a really challenging role, I think. 
it sounds like you were in organizations where they were focused on it they wanted to make something of it uh, they invested in it they took it seriously it was expected to do volume yes uh, there have been quite a lot of instances in my career where i've seen the fleet person in the dealership is a little bit of a lone a lone soul really without the support and the understanding and doing a very different job doing a, a business to business sales role an outbound sales role rather than a retail role yeah. which requires different different skills and different behaviors so yeah interesting you were doing it on a very professional uh, level yeah i mean it, it it pretty much was the to the business when they realized what the turnover was from the corporate side of the business it's a bit of an eye opener it almost allowed them to pick and choose the retail business they did to make sure they got more revenue out of the retail business. You know, they sort of thought, right, we know what we've got to give away in the nicest possible way to win that corporate business. But if we get so much volume of that and it unlocks bonuses and it and the rest it brings us a lot of money and a lot of credibility with the manufacturer. So there's allocation needed. They will think, well, those guys will sell those cars. So it puts you really on the radar. Yes. They were approaching it as a, an opportunity and not a, a necessary evil, something they had to do. It was how can we do this in such a way that it's really going to work? It's going to be mutually beneficial for us and the brands that we represent. That's it. It's quite a, that that large volume corporate business is quite a long way from what my understanding of what you do now is. So, what was right. <laughs> tell us how it evolved and and uh, how you came to be the okay. specialist, specialist that you are now. Right. Well, after after that, uh, going and joining that company with the multi uh, franchised business, I got my head turned by a tv program one night that what was going on in australia and um this was a sort of a, a bit of a shock to my family that i turned around and said oh, i want to go and live in australia what was like, the i love these moments when people get their <laughs> their head turned what uh, what was it that was what, what was going on in australia that was so attractive uh, only the property that you could get for your money was unbelievable and i watched this program one night wanted down under or something like that it was called and they said well you can get this x amount of bedroomed house and a swimming pool for this much money and i'm i kind of thought my god i could sell my little house that i had i could go there and live like a king you know Right. And uh, I'll find myself a job down there. And that was it. <laughs> I packed up and, you know, back in 2003, no, uh, yeah, first holiday was 2003, came back and said, right, it's definitely for me. And um, I, yeah, I went down to Western Australia. I can imagine that was a bit of a shock to the family. And you went, first of all, had a look on holiday, though, so you didn't just jump with both feet until you'd had a, you checked it out, but then liked it. So what was the reality like when you got there? Well, it was everything I wanted it to be, to be honest with you. Okay. The sun, the sun was out. It was wonderful. 
the only thing that was missing, Andy, was obviously a job. And I'd been used to doing what I'd been doing for a long time and started to get, I wouldn't say cold feet, but I started to think I need to do this and get into something. So surprise, surprise, I started selling cars and boats. And I worked for a Toyota dealer. And of course, I'd had some Toyota experience from one of my previous roles. And yeah, so sold Toyota and something called a pontoon boat down in uh, Australia, which is like a floating lounge, big open spaces. And uh, they just just cruise around the, the canals, you know, very slow speed. But all they do after that work down there uh, is drink cans of beer and nice wine. This sounds like, uh, yeah, a, a significant moment. Really, obviously, there's the the huge international move. There's also this changing role, the, the car bit. You've leveraged your experience in selling cars, and then you've added selling boats into your mix. Was there much difference with boats? Did you have much to learn there, or did you find that it was more in common with with selling cars than you might have thought? Well, fortunately, I'd been boating with my parents since I was six years old. So I know how to, you know, drive a boat, handle a boat, etc. Um, so when I got interviewed for that job, it was, we need you to hand over customers' boats to them. We need you to spec their boats up for them. And it was, yeah, it was a, it was a great role. So I was half the week selling cars and half the week selling boats. It was wonderful, wonderful, but it all came to a bit of an abrupt end, unfortunately. Oh, why was that? Because my youngest nephew contracted Hodgkin's lymphoma. Oh, my goodness. So I came back after 18 months because, you know, I wanted to support my sister and uh, my little nephew, who was 10 at the time. But touch wood, he... Uh, he got through it. He's now just had uh, his b- uh, first baby son. So um, he came. I was not expecting this to have a happy ending, this bit of the story. It was fortunate. It was very, 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 very good. And uh, But what, what happened is I got back. Everybody knew I was back, if you know what I mean, my work colleagues and things like that. And somebody offered me... Uh, a position at another BMW dealer to go and run their corporate business for them. So because of family and everything else, I decided to stay in the UK. And again, your reputation and your experience in the corporate world came before you, if you like, and yeah. gave the opportunity to, to find another good position. Yeah, it was a saviour for me. And I spent eight years in that position then looking after three three BMW businesses and all the corporate sales that they did. So uh, that was really good, really good. And you'd have had teams of people responsible. You'd have been responsible for teams of people in, in that situation, yeah? Indeed. Teams of people, budgets, you name it, demonstration vehicles, everything that comes with it, Andy. And what did you look for in your corporate sales people? 
trying to find mini me's really people that had empathy with customers that were likable people um and that's how the corporate world revolves it's very much about people it's obviously about terms trading terms but it's also it's very much about service and very much about personality so you'd made the right decision you'd made the choice to come back for family reasons and then you you must have settled then you spent eight years in that role yeah and um what caused you to move on okay so a good contact of mine at one of the major leasing companies decided that he was going to go and work for rolls royce goodwood motorcars and as a joke one day i phoned him and i said now that you've got a rolls royce demonstrator can i wash it for you and he laughed and he said, if only I could have a Rolls-Royce demonstrator, it would be fantastic. So I said, I've been thinking about stuff. I think I'd like to sell Rolls-Royces. So he said to me, if you want to sell Rolls-Royces, you need to speak to this person. So he put me in contact with the director at Rolls-Royce Motorcars in London. So. Uh, I phoned this person and out of their curiosity, they said, come and see me. What what did you say to them, Ian, when you phoned up? Literally, that I've been in automotive for a long, long time. I've sold these brands, this number of cars per annum, et cetera, et cetera. I've decided that I want to sell the pinnacle of automotive and that is Rolls Royce that's what I said to him and he said come on down so I went to see him had an interview and he offered me the position of being one of three sales guys in Rolls Royce London now how busy is a Rolls Royce showroom Well, let me put it this way. It was at times you would be thinking, what have I done? I'm going from transacting thousands of cars and lots and lots of emails and having people here, there and everywhere. Almost as if you're thinking this is surreal. You know, what what have I done? So to answer your question, I sold, and I can only give units, I sold 40 new Rolls Royces in one year. And that was that was me. And obviously, the other guys didn't sell as many. But, yeah. A penny has just dropped for me that, and, and see what you think of this, that I'm assuming there aren't many Rolls Royce customers don't walk in the showroom in the same way that they might do for other brands, in the same way that big fleets don't walk into showrooms. So actually, if you wanted to learn how to sell cars to Rolls Royce customers, you're probably better off being in corporate sales than you are in retail. There is uh, some similarity because... Not every Rolls-Royce customer, you would know who they were. You would be dealing with an intermediary in terms of their secretary, 
a family office person. Yeah, I mean, you can meet people that come in, absolutely, but it's invariable. Uh, it's a phone call and it's a lot of talk on the phone. Just more outbound yeah. activity. Yeah, and absolutely. not fo- It's not about footfall in the showroom. It's no. your outbound. Yeah, absolutely. And um, where your, your CRM, if you like, is crucial when it comes to this end of the market. So recognising the value of your database, your little black book and your attention to detail of making notes, keeping track of dates and and so on is uh, paramount to succeed at this level. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, paramount. Were you feeling pretty, were you feeling special having, um, maybe special is not the right word, but... um, Having the pinnacle, I like that word. I think actually the magazine, the Rolls Royce magazine, uh, was certainly the one in in Southeast Asia was called Pinnacle. I think. Yeah, could have been, could have been could have been. Yeah, it's, it's an emotive word, isn't it? Um, so, did you feel like you were at the pinnacle? As the manager said to me when he took me on, he said, "It's a Rolls Royce. It's still got four wheels and an engine." And it needs to be sold. (laughs) So, you know, for those in automotive out there, they will know what what I mean by that. It it is a car. It's got a different badge on it or the spirit of ecstasy in this case. But it's still got to be sold. It's not going to sell itself. That's not a function it has. Yeah. So, you know, they've all got margin. They've all got... If you can retain margin, you need to retain margin. You know, you need to sell finance. Nothing changes. Nothing changes. It's just the clientele and how you handle them may be different. In terms of the balance, you know, buying a car is an emotional as well as a rational decision. Your corporate sales customers tend to be more rational, I think. They tend to be more about the CFO is deciding what we're going to use. We've got a choice list here. We're going to buy these vehicles. Compared to your Rolls-Royce, is that more emotional? No one needs a Rolls-Royce, I don't think. I think it's a, uh, the people that I've met and got on well with and talked about why they've made their decision it's all about their um they've worked for years a lot of them uh, they've idolized you know the rolls royce they've seen it when i can afford one i'm gonna buy one and i've never sold a car to a lottery winner it's always been someone that's worked hard and bought these cars you know as a as a pat on the back for themselves it's a reward yeah, so it's it's how it makes them feel. It's something they've aspired to. Yeah. Statement, and as you say, a reward, a pat on the back for the work that they've done. Yeah. And you've stayed at this end of the market, Ian. I have now, actually, because I've I've found it rewarding. You know, the people that I've met, the the opportunities that I've been presented with, the travel that it's given me. I've certainly enjoyed it very, very much. 
I don't know if you're on social media, but I can imagine you could have quite the Instagram account if you wanted to uh, just post pictures of the of where you were and what you were doing. Tell us a little bit about the world of high net worth or ultra high net worth luxury sales and where that takes you and what your job might look like over a, a day or a few weeks of being out there doing what you do. Well, you're absolutely right, Andy, on the social media thing. You, I'm, as you know, a little bit old school. Perhaps I don't know how to work it too well. But, um, yeah, I've been to some fantastic places. After working at Rolls-Royce London, uh, I got given an opportunity to work for Rolls-Royce Motorcars themselves in Goodwood. They had a, uh, a department called the Private Office Department. And what that uh, what that did or started out life was Rolls-Royce popping up in locations where the ultra high net worth people go on holiday. So just to give you an idea, Porto Cervo in Sardinia is where the super yacht highway in the Med, where a lot of people stay. They come in, they moor up their huge, huge super yachts and get off and just go shopping. And lo and behold, Rolls-Royce are there. We've sold cars to people who have left America or Saudi on their super yacht, and they've gone home with a Rolls-Royce order. So you've got to fish where the fish are, as they say. You follow, follow the money. That's it. So some of the locations have been um, Samaritz in Switzerland, I got dispatched at one stage to St. Bart's with a, just my business card, with the remit, go and sell some cars in St. Bart's. So but what did you was, do? So you turn up in St. Bart's with your business cards. There's no, there's no showroom there to no. protect you. Or, uh, so what do, you what, do do? I, what do I do? I just I went to go and see all the hotels all the directors of the hotels, the concierges, the, the best restaurants, attend all of the parties that go on over the Christmas and New Year period with, with a remit, if you like, just to meet people. Uh, I went to go and see the guy at the private airfield. I went to go and see the guy that runs the planes that go backwards and forwards, taking the people from the island of St. Bart's. So, just putting the name on to say somebody is here for this period of time from Rolls-Royce. If you know anybody, please put them in contact. And lo and behold, on New Year's Day, I signed up a gentleman from Australia to buy a Rolls-Royce in my swimming trunks. How about that? <laughs> So we talk about, you know, causation and correlation. I'm guessing you just happened to be in your swimming trunks. It wasn't because you're in your swimming trunks that you sold the Rolls Royce. No, it was no, no. appropriate attire for where you were at the time. You've got it. The dress code was swimming trunks. Yes. <laughs> I love it. But with the Rolls Royce pen and Rolls Royce order form in my briefcase. How about that? Very good. 
So what you were doing then is you, you land and you don't know any high net worth individuals in the area. You know they're going to be coming through or they're already there. So yeah. your next best thing is to identify who are they going to be coming very close to. They're going to come very close to hotel concierges and they're going to yes. come close to the guy at the private airstrip. So, it. you know, short of cold calling, you know, or knocking on their doors when you don't, uh, they're not going to appreciate that. You, you go to the next level of connection, you know, one step away from those people and do your marketing there, your personal face-to-face marketing, raise awareness. And then how do you get invited to the parties? It's, it's all very softly, softly, Andy. I, I don't know how it works, really, but you're, you'll speak to the people at the Eden Rock Hotel, for instance, and you'll say who you are and, you know, what's going on, can you tell me where I should go, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you get a phone call just to say, oh, Ian, we'd like to introduce you to, um, you know, XYZ customer who's here for two weeks we told him you're here and he wants to meet you and next thing you know you are at a champagne reception or you are at someone's wife's birthday party uh, as a guest it just opens doors like you wouldn't believe and i'm thinking of it from the hotel's perspective or the party organizer's perspective that you're adding value there's if people are getting off their super yachts and going shopping then there isn't a rolls-royce showroom in the in the area they can go to but it's okay we've got the next best thing we've got ian at the party who you can talk to that's it so given your if you don't mind me saying sort of humble if entrepreneurial upbringing we sort of comfortable making the shift into this ultra high net worth environment uh, it just came naturally to me, Andy. You know, I, I talk to everybody, whether they're the janitor or the chief executive, in the same way. Uh, yeah, so you weren't intimidated. In the same way you weren't intimidated to pick the phone up and call all the customers when you were asked, there was no sense of intimidation about the... Uh, but not intimidated by wealth. You can't be those people. And I think... You know, once once you realise that, you know, these guys have got wealth beyond anything, you know, it's a leveller. You know, I just I just talk to them as if they are individuals, forget who who they are in the nicest possible way and the wealth they've got. You're there just to be yourself. And I think they I think they um, they warm to that. So you could be in these locations for periods of a few weeks. Oh yes, the longest longest period was for Tuchervo was three three months. The first time I was there. And were you on your own in terms of relationships and things? Was that okay to do because you didn't have a partner, or what was the? Uh... No, my my partner knew what it was all about uh, and why and um, joined for the summer holidays so we did get to see each other but understood you know it is the job and this is what you do i'm just what that's making me think of is my brother-in-law 
was in the Royal Marines and did sort of stints in Iraq and Sierra Leone and places, and his wife tolerated that. Yes. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's... <laughs> If it's easier or harder if your partner's going to Porto Servo for three months. Oh, I know. They, you know, when you send when you send pictures back of being on a speedboat, or one minute you're on a, a the deck of or a helipad just about to be lifted off to go over to someone's super yacht that's so big it can't come into port. You know. Yeah, it's it's a little bit envious, and the, the problem is you can't share it with you know your family. So it's a bit bittersweet, if you know what I mean. Yes, you find yourself, I'm sure, thinking this. Yeah, this is nice. What would make this would be if my significant other were here, if my loved ones were here. Yeah. this would actually be. It's not the same if it's just no, no. It's it's not the same, and it's work. You know, it, it is work. Yeah, yeah, people aren't gonna buy it. Is work, I'm sure it is work, but you can imagine that is quite a hard sell. Uh, (laughs) some of the stuff you're describing, yeah, those parties, those super yachts, there must be uh, heart bleeds, and 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 driving a Rolls Royce literally every single day of the week, yeah. Uh, Okay, so you're out there doing that. I'm just wondering how sympathetic. The CFOs back in Germany were if you weren't hitting your numbers, or, or were you fortunate and successful and good enough to be able to uh, hit that, your numbers and keep them happy with the lifestyle that you had? That wasn't in question. We absolutely smashed all of the expectations. And some of that, I'm sure, was down to your own abilities, your background, your experience, the processes you put in place, and the way you operated. Were there some market factors supporting you as well during that time? No, because everything got sold at list price. We had to have the power of attorney to operate on behalf of the Rolls-Royce dealers around the world. So we had to get all of that first. However, what we had to do is we had to do it very, very quickly. Because you know what boats do? They float away, don't they? So we had to meet someone build that rapport with them and do things very, very quickly. How interesting that you've got a ticking clock, really. Your customer is mobile and it's going to disappear. Yeah, going to disappear. So you've got to make that impression immediately. So it's, uh, yeah, good challenge. Very good. So what uh, came after Rolls-Royce? Okay, so sadly... After a change of senior, uh, I'm going to interrupt. I'm going to interrupt just to warn my listeners that it doesn't get less glamorous. So if they're, if they're <laughs> hoping that you went back down market, it isn't happening soon. So um, okay, that's the that's the prepare for some more glamour and excitement, listeners. Okay, Ian, back to you. Sorry for interrupting. Okay, so so uh, Rolls Royce changed some senior uh, management and they had a different view on whether Rolls-Royce actually needed to be in all of these locations. But what happened was there was a a brand called McLaren that had seen what we were doing with the private office concept and they picked up the idea and I ended up working with McLaren Automotive 
out of Woking, working in conjunction with one of my colleagues there. And we were effectively doing the same thing as Rolls-Royce Private Office, but not uh, with the overseas sort of trips, if you like. Uh, It was all from uh, McLaren uh, Technology Centre. If anybody's ever been to the McLaren Technology Centre, what an office. I cannot tell you. I'm not sure if you've been, Andy. I have. It is very impressive. If you watch Netflix Drive to Survive, they always do a little bit with Zach Brown in his office and they usually show some of the inside, don't they? And go past where you've got the parade of F1 cars and it's wonderful. It's just absolutely wonderful. And the stories that come out of that place are unbelievable. You know, and you're walking past Senna's car, Pross car every day. When you're a car guy like me and you see stuff like that, it's just unbelievable. We Another were, example of somebody then picking you up to do what they'd seen happening before. Yeah. Exactly. It's either a reputation or someone wants what you're doing, you know, and to emulate it for themselves. It's good fun. It really is good fun. And then they ask you, you know, can you set up the processes and the customer journey and how do you see this work and that work? You know, from the demonstration drive to the configuration to the tour of the factory uh, and then, you know, the wonderful lunch and and they come out of the place and say, where do I sign? I feel blessed. Yes. I feel yes. blessed to have been able to do these jobs, you know. Very motivating place to go. Lots of heritage. Very exciting Yeah, energy in there. I can imagine that really helping the sales process. And I'm really appreciating this idea of if people are going to hire you at some stage in the future for what you've done, then when you're looking at roles to take, ask yourself, what is this role going to give me that's going to be attractive? You know, it's going to build my attractiveness yeah. to other people because we've seen that happen numerous times in your story. Yeah. And w- what are you up to now then, Ian? What does it look like today? Okay, so I've, in 2019, in order to be able to work with McLaren and invoice them for my services i set up my own company with a view to at the time just being able to create an invoice for them yeah but that's gone on a bit now and i have had a number of opportunities or contracts if you like that i non-conflicting that i can uh, take on board and work with so covid kept me back at home working from the office here but because of technology because of these wonderful zoom calls and google meets or teams meetings an awful lot can be achieved through just talking to people putting processes together selling cars for people making introductions setting up collaborations so that's that's pretty much where we are today with some exciting things that are around the corner which andy i can't really tell you about. yeah i was just about to ask you but i'll ask <laughs> you <laughs> so you're you have your own business now you're consulting to premium brands not just automotive i think you're in you're well established in the luxury ultra high net worth space yes and that black book you alluded to earlier 
people ring me, whether they know I'm connected to various people, but they'll just ring just to say, I'm looking for this. Can you help? And it seems to be, I mean, so far, I've transacted property, boats, cars, and some aviation things going on. So it's just a real mad thing that's come from my humble beginnings in the automotive world. Wonderful, wonderful story. And if people want to get hold of you, we'll put your email address in our show notes for this episode, whether that's, uh, you know, whatever luxury items they might be interested in. (laughs) Just please ask me, you know, because I'm very happy to help. And that's my ethos, really, just happy to help because I, I just think good things come back. Um, are there any are there any things I should have asked you, Ian, that I, I haven't or any things that happened that are noteworthy that uh, our, our listeners might find interesting? Yeah, I think I think the one that sticks in my mind the most was uh, I got a call from Rolls-Royce head office to say, um, uh, Ian, whilst you're in Italy, on your way back, would you drive the Rolls-Royce to Modena? Because we've got a special guest that we want you to look after for three days. Okay, who is it? They said it's um, Prince Edward. And uh, I drove to Bologna Airport And the flight came in, Prince Edward came up to the car, someone opened the door, I was sat in the driver's seat, the back door opened and another guy got in. Turns out the guy that got in the back was his guard with a gun, Prince Edward in front with me and they just said, follow the blue police car, the Italian police car. And we went from Bologna to Modena in approximately 25 minutes, full speed. Every time we went through one of the tolls, the police were standing on the tolls and saluted us. And I kept on looking at the speedo, saying to Prince Edward, "Uh, we're going a bit too quick, he said. Don't worry, keep up with the police car. Right. (laughs) And that was it. I was with him, uh, as I say, for three days on a tour with him. Great fun he was. Listening to music, you know, really good fun. And I've got a fantastic picture of him with me at Bologna Airport when we said goodbye to each other. Brilliant. And I also like, you know, these are holistic conversations. Ian, I like to talk about the whole person. And you did allude to the fact that you're getting married when we were speaking earlier. And I hope you don't mind me bringing it up. And if you do, we'll edit it out. We'll edit it out. But did you want to say a little bit about that before we sign off? Yes. Well, 14 years ago, a blind date. And yeah, 14 years, one son. And uh, I think I'm going to be the oldest guy ever to walk down the aisle for the first time. Yeah, I've held out because I've been I've been away working. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, I hope it goes extremely well. I hope you have a wonderful day. And I would just want to say thank you very much indeed for sharing your story with us so that we can hear how it panned out for you and the trajectory that you've created for yourself and lots of interesting points in there. So thank you. Thank you, Ian. Thanks, Andy. Have a good weekend then. You too. All See the best. Too. Cheers. Cheers now. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Careerview Mirror with me, Andy Follows. I hope you found some helpful points to reflect on in Ian's story that can help you with your own career journey or that of those you lead, parent or mentor. You are unique and during my conversation with Ian, you'll have picked up on topics that resonate with you. A few things I noticed were how he learned to sell cars and then he added boats to his repertoire and the fact that it helped that he was familiar with boating from his childhood experiences. The lessons he learned about the importance of paying attention to detail when he didn't check that letter to the customer, uh, how his focus on relationships has underpinned his career and how he now has an invaluable network of clients and potential clients. And never mind net promoter scores, do your customers stay in touch with you for years after you've sold them a car? Ian's do. The idea of dropping into beautiful location like Porto Servo with your business cards and a remit to stay for three months and sell as many Rolls Royces as you can. I'm sure it's not for everyone, but it does sound pretty glamorous, doesn't it? especially compared to some of the locations and stories we've heard about during these episodes. The idea of going where your customers are rather than waiting for them to come to you. Simple, but effective. The idea that there even is a super yacht superhighway in the Mediterranean. That's a concept I'd never given much thought to. And recognising that now Ian's operating in the super luxury segment with ultra high net worth clients, you can make the transition across other luxury goods segments. You can contact Ian via email, ian at carsmith.co.uk, and we'll put that address in the show notes to this episode. We publish these episodes to celebrate my guests' careers, listen to their stories, and learn from their experiences. And I'm genuinely interested in what resonated with you. If you have any comments or feedback for us, if you have any questions, or if Ian's insights have helped you, please let us know by leaving a review. Your feedback helps us to grow. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, or you can find the episode on our Instagram at Careerview Mirror and comment there. Thank you to all of you for sharing your feedback. Thanks also to Hannah and Julia, who, as part of the Careerview Mirror team here at Aquali, work so hard to deliver these episodes to you. Aquali is a boutique consultancy in the auto finance and mobility industry. We offer our expertise as a service to help you design and deliver projects and programs that develop your business and the people within it. Contact me if you'd like to know more. Aquali is a boutique consultancy in the auto finance and mobility industry. We offer our expertise as a service to help you design and deliver projects that develop your business and the people within it. Contact me if you'd like to know more. To be among the first to know about upcoming guests, follow us on Instagram at Careerview Mirror. And remember, folks, if you know people who would benefit from hearing these stories, please show them how to find us. Thanks for listening.